Jack Spirito with the Survival Podcast. Welcome to an episode of Friday Flashbacks. After 15 years and hundreds of interview shows, we decided to run them as flashbacks every Friday, beginning with the oldest of them and going forward. There's a tremendous library of wisdom in all the great interviews we've done over the years, so sit back and enjoy. Whether this is your first time or even your second time around with today's episode, I'm sure you will enjoy it and learn a lot from it. And remember, you can help support the Survival Podcast and the work we do just by becoming a member of the Survival Podcast Members Support Brigade. If you do that, you'll get access to over 70 awesome discount codes on products and services you likely already use. Things like seeds, cannabis products, food storage items, custom roasted coffee, and even cool stuff like ammo and moonshine stills and more. So support the show, get all your money back and more. Just go to the survivalpodcast.com and click on members to learn more and sign up. Now let's get into today's Friday flashback. Hey guys, Jack here. Um, I did design the Friday flashbacks to be very template driven and so most of them will have no additional content for me in real time. This one's going to be an exception. Um, when I put together the list of all the interviews and realized my seventh interview was with Ron Hood, uh, I decided right then, so that was last month when I put the list together, that when this one came up, I was going to add a little bit because of how big of uh, influence and what a great friend Ron Hood became in my life in a very short period of time. And then, unfortunately, uh, he did pass. Uh, when I looked at uh, it overall, Ron's been on the, was on the show three times, and that was far too few. And in the the years that that we knew each other, I probably should have had him on more. Though I didn't really start doing interviews in earnest till a couple years after this episode. So these first few interviews, they were they kind of came in a flurry. A lot of them came from people I met at Dirt Time '09, the one we did last week with John McCann being one of those, or, or actually Dave Canterbury, and prior to that, John McCann. So I had uh, John McCann, Dave Canterbury, and Ron Hood on in order that way, uh, kind of back to back to back in a flurry of interviews. And then we kind of drifted for a while, and we did interviews here and there, and they didn't become uh, a core part of what we do here until a couple years down the road as the show began to mature. Anyway, I just wanted to, for those that don't know the history here, tell you a little bit about who Ron Hood is and how we became friends. Ron is one of the true pioneers in the world of preparedness and survival. His widow, Karen Hood, still uh, carries on the legacy of the Hoodlums Forum and, of course, survival.com. That kind of tells you how early Ron was to this game. He was here before all of us. Uh, he was known as the Woods Master, and he was a pretty amazing man. Uh, he was in the United States military as an advisor early in the Vietnam conflict. He was uh, part uh, of an organization called the ASA, or Army Security Agency, uh, again, serving in the Vietnam War. And, and that's interesting because the ASA officially was never there, at least on the surface, but covertly were uh, is radio research is, is what they were saying. It's kind of a predecessor uh, to the mar modern special forces. And he uh, became known in time as the Woods Master, again, uh, founding Survival.com, uh, the Hoodlums Forum, 
and uh, a lot of other really great stuff and did a whole series of DVDs uh, on survival, preparedness, bushcrafting, etc. like that. And again, did all this stuff well before you could just put it up on YouTube. That's why they were in DVDs. Uh, uh, he started doing this way, way, way before the Internet took off and then was an early adopter of Internet technology and getting it distributed. So that's the very basic uh, background. He also has... Uh, left behind a legacy in the hoodlum and the punk knives sold through Buck now, uh, originally designed by Top Knives. Just an amazing man. Well, in 2009, I was very early in my career. I was about a year and a half into doing this podcast. It's now been running for 15 years. New kid on the block type of thing. And I went and presented at Dirt Time 09. And Ron was the kind of guy, you know, and I know what this is like now. And I, I, I kind of empathized back then, but I wasn't this guy yet. So I hadn't really experienced it. Where when he walked into a, a group at something like that, he would get mobbed by people. And I, I didn't really want to be another person dogpiling onto a guy, but I very much wanted to meet him. So I waited until later in the event when kind of that died down. And I asked for one of the folks connected with the event to introduce me. And we met. And there's a picture somewhere. I'm going to try to find that picture. I don't know if I can. But if I can find it, I'm going to add it to the, the show notes for this episode. That is literally the first five minutes that we, were, uh, we met each other. And the reason I, I add this and I tell this story is that we became friends to the level of a brotherhood. And it was... Something that, you know, we didn't get to spend a lot of time in the real world face-to-face -face with each other. We only got to do that a few times. But we ended up speaking several times a week by phone, instant message, email, etc. And I ended up writing for his magazine. We did quite a few different things together. And we had plans to do more. And unfortunately, while we were living in Arkansas, during the Arkansas years, Ron passed away. And I, I looked up... Uh, the memorial that Karen posted about him on their site, I'm going to add that to the notes here as well. So if you want to know more, that you can. But to, to, to tell you the kind of person Ron was and the kind of person or the kind of family that he built, I heard about this. And uh, the, the, the day, the morning that it was announced, so he actually passed away in bed next to his wife, Karen, um, and I knew that she would probably hear from a lot of people, so I didn't want to dogpile onto that either. So I went to my office, because I, I maintained an office in Arkansas, because we couldn't have internet where we lived that was good enough to do a podcast anyway. And I drove home. I drove home from my office about 11, 12 o'clock in the afternoon, having recorded the show and gotten all the work that needed to be done that I needed to be in the office to do. And... I pulled over at the bottom of the mountain that we lived on. There was a dirt road, really rough, about three miles up to the place, so I didn't want to call then. I didn't want to call on the road. I pulled over right as I got off the main road, and I sat there, and I called Karen. And it's, uh, it's one of those things you can't forget. The first, I called her to comfort her, to offer my condolences, and to their son as well. And the first words out of her mouth... Or God, he loved you, Jack. I called this woman on one of the worst days of her life, I am sure. And her first words were... And that alone is why I, I could not let this go by without adding an additional tribute to my friend and brother, Ron. 
And uh, he was just an amazing man that gave so much to so many people and built one of the earliest true dedicated to each other communities. Um, Ron was just a special person. And so I invite you now as we go back to October the 6th, 2009, originally episode 292, an interview with Ron Hood to experience a man that many of you probably never met. Many of you probably were not listening to the Survival Podcast uh, back then or even the later episodes. I think the latest episode I did was somewhere near 600 with Ron before he was, he was gone from us. And that wasn't very long before he left us. Just a great guy, an American hero, and somebody truly dedicated to the concept of preparedness. I give you Ron Hood and Jack Spirico in 2009. With that, we've got the housekeeping wrapped up, and I want to introduce our guest today. Our guest today is Ron Hood. Ron is an icon in the survival and preparedness industry, been around for a long time, way longer, of course, than me, uh, has done a tremendous amount of good for the industry, a, a lot of work that's made kind of survivalism and prepping mainstream. He's been featured in, in magazines like Wilderness Way uh, and The Backwoodsman. Uh, his uh, website's located at survival.com, and that's a brilliant piece of marketing. I promise you if that would have been available when I launched this show, my podcast would be at that domain, but he got there first and uh, done a lot for the industry. Ron, thanks for being with us today. Well, thanks for having me there, Jay. How can I help you? Well, you know, here's the thing, Ron. Um, I loved meeting you at a third time, and it was really cool to be able to walk up to you talking and see you're a normal guy like everybody else. And, uh, you, you know, you're just looking to help people, honestly. And, and you've been teaching survival, preparedness, and outdoor skills for a long time. Can you tell us a bit about how you got started and why you chose this industry in the first place? Well, that's a tough one. Um, I can only tell you it's tough because I don't even know why I chose it. I never did have a real job, you know. Uh, this started probably back about 40 years ago, and it's been that long. It's hard to believe sometimes when I look back, but I have the pictures, and I can prove it. I was a hippie when I started this stuff, and that's probably what drove me into it. Uh, prior to being a hippie, I was in the military for about four years in a thing called the Army Security Agency, and during the course of our training there, we had a, uh, well, kind of a wilderness component, I guess you could call it, more or less survival. And uh, whenever they sent me someplace, I had an option to learn a little bit about the local people. So that, that started the interest. And uh, from then on, we, we didn't even look back. So, yeah, you, you, you jump ahead on me a little bit there because that was kind of my next question for you. You were an Army vet. You were, <laughs> you were in the Army during the Vietnam War. So when you say 40 years ago, you're not kidding. And you were part of this thing called the ASA. Can you tell us a bit about what the ASA was and uh, your experience now, come Pardon on. Me? It's on your uh, website. It's got to be okay now. Yeah, absolutely, buddy. I'll tell you, uh, Army Security Agency was started back in 1945 and basically was intended to be a signal intelligence division. And uh, it was a pipeline command that went straight to the Joint Chiefs of Staff. So any intelligence, uh, intelligence that we were able to develop went straight up into the highest levels, which meant that we weren't really in the chain of command for the Army, which was disturbing for some of the people. But uh, we had our own schools. We had our own uh, systems for handling things, our own missions. Um, they included uh, electronic intelligence and human intelligence and a variety of other things. But uh, the schools, I think, were probably the most important part of what we did because our training lasted. It, it depends, of course, on your MOS or military occupational specialty. But 
they lasted about well anywhere from nine months to about a year and a half in the case of the lingies we call them the linguists so um uh, that was kind of what we were. The, the program, the Army Security Agency, continued until about 1976, right at the end of the war. And, and at that point, they were subsumed by the the INSCOM, it's a, uh Army Intelligence System. And um, that was pri- primarily because of our chain of command issues. <laughs> a little bit maverick. They called us the Spooks. If that yeah, yeah. And would you say that's had a, a big footprint or imprint on your life, and, and like kind of what you've done since since then? Absolutely. The uh, the agency taught us to think outside of the box, and you can't be in intelligence without um, uh, a sense of an imagination. You know, uh, a little bit of amusement at the way people are, and and a need to grow and develop new skills. And so, I think the agency was a big part of of that, at least for me. You know, I was a young guy, nineteen years old, mm-hmm. I came in and. Khrushchev was in. In fact, John F. Kennedy was the president when I went into my intel training. And um, so it was a, a really interesting time of uh, time in our history. And, uh, you know, I, I, a lot of things that I saw and learned during that time created in me a need to have not just urban, not wilderness uh, skills, but urban skills as well, because I've never been secure in the thought that this civilization it's going to last for a long time. <laughs> it's a pretty fragile thing that we've managed to make. You know, I was in the Army in a totally wow. different time under a totally different president. You know, before I even say this, we're going to go ahead and get this out of the way now. Ron's been suffering, folks, through the swine flu for about a week. And the only reason I bring that up is I've gotten so many questions from you guys, and some of you guys are really freaked out about this thing. Ron, let's just knock this out. It sucks, but you'll get over it, right? I, I expect to be dead by the end of the evening. <laughs> no, it, yes, it sucks. It sucks big. Um, but it doesn't suck as big as the Hong Kong flu. And, uh, and, you know, you don't hear too much about that. It, it's, uh, definitely on the, on the suck list. So, but you know what? Balancing this against other flus, I'd say it's about the same. You know, it's, it's pure misery, but what the heck? That's what life is all about. That's what I've been hearing, and I don't mean to segue there, but we wanted to get it in, and I figured I'd use your cough as a a launch board. (laughs) What I I was saying when you started dying on us there, though, was, you know, um, I was in the Army in a totally – I was in the Army Airborne in a totally different time frame, and I ended up deployed with a group of combat engineers around 1991, right after I came back from Saudi Arabia and, and, and the first Gulf War. And we were in the middle of this place called Agwan River Valley. And it, it is the most remote, uh, primitive location I've ever been in in my life. There was no plumbing, no electricity. The people lived in, I mean, sh- calling them shacks would have been uh, being nice to them. I've still got a photo album of the, the whole deployment today that I keep just as a single album. And, and, and my son's 20 years old now, but when he was younger, I'd pull it out when he would complain about a video game or something and say, look, you see this little kid here? And he'd go, yeah, I know. He's got donkey crap in front of him on the road, and that's how he <laughs> lived. But, you know, the thing was, I, I looked at this, and these people lived in, like, this abject poverty, absolute misery. But at the other, at the other side of it, they actually seemed to get along pretty well. They were happy. Uh, they they were they were good people. If you gave them something, they were like totally grateful. I remember one day I was carrying a an MRE box, and it was empty. There was nothing in it, and I was carrying it to throw it away. And this lady started yelling to me, 
And I, I was like, she thinks I have a case of MRE. She's going to be really disappointed with this box, you know. <laughs> and and I, I'm like, it's Facante. It's Facante, which is Spanish, is empty, you know. And she's like, it, she didn't care. She wanted, she, uh, quiero caja, I want the box. And I'm like, fine. So I gave her the box. She was, you know, elated. I, I'm sure you've been to places like that. How has that kind of shaped your view about things like, you know, what's really necessary in the world? Well, you, you can't help but be shaped by those kinds of things. I lived with, uh, when I was stationed in Turkey, I guess you could call it stationed, there was a small group there on the north coast of the Black Sea. I mean, I'm sorry, the north coast of Turkey, the south coast of the Black Sea. And uh, at one point I was assigned to work with the Kurdish tribesmen that came through the area there. And it was just a short thing. But, you know, I watched how those people live, and, and, and you're absolutely right. They they had nothing, at least it seemed like nothing. You know, they they had a couple of animals, and they had goat milk and all of that kind of stuff. Their clothes were filthy and they smelled worse, but they seemed to be happy. You know, there was a, there was just a, a joy in simply being alive. There wasn't an expectation that things were going to be good or that the government was going to take care of them or, or anything like that. They just made do. And I think that it, in a way what that first taught me was that there's um, a, an issue of the self that comes to the fore pretty quickly you know, self-confidence, self-sufficiency, self-awareness, all of those things. And you really gain those selves when you present yourself to um, to an environment that doesn't give a damn whether or not you live or die. Mm-hmm. And, um, and that's the one that they lived in. So they had the self-confidence. They had the self-sufficiency built up. And today, though, you know, you look around the people who haven't had an experience with a primitive culture and they're, Oh my God! Like you were saying, oh, the Wii isn't working today. What's the problem? <laughs> you know, for God's sake, get over it, kid. Life is going to continue. Yeah. You know, yeah. Don't kill a chicken. But you know, <laughs> after that, I got to spend some time with the Montagnard tribesmen in Vietnam, and got to see how they would do things. And I learned a lot of wilderness skills from these people. And we call them wilderness skills, but in fact, they're just living skills. And uh, and that's so critical. You know, when you change things from being survival to being living. You know, change those two words out. I don't like the word survival anymore. I want to call it living. Well, that would be closer to the truth. Survival comes in when you're in an emergency. You find yourself out there. Oh my God! I left everything at home. I don't have a way to start a fire. Oh, crisis called. You know, and you start whining and carrying on. That's survival. Yeah. But if you go out there with nothing, and you've got a head packed full of skills, and your fingers work properly, and you got one or two good good tools like a knife and so forth. Um, that's wilderness living, and that's just a ball. That's kind of what we try to teach people. You know, that's really cool, and it just shows how people that come from such different angles at this feel the same way. I mean, I call my show the Survival Podcast, but I had Dave Canterbury on earlier this week, and I I told him flat out, I, I it's really more like the self-sufficiency podcast, but I didn't think that people would search for that on Google, so I called it the Survival Podcast, and he has a philosophy of he hates the term survival situation, because that means you've screwed up, and now you're saying kind of the same thing, and, and I think what it really comes down to, especially when you deal with primitive cultures, is this is the way everybody lived 200 years ago, even here, and, and we've just lost touch with that. Oh, absolutely. If you take... Um our experience as a, as a species on the planet, if you drew a line across your living room 10 feet long and you call that 100,000 years, because 100,000 years ago people would look pretty much like they look today. In fact, you might date one, but, uh, you know, the hair on her back might have been a little worse, but <laughs> other than that, she would have been pretty similar. <laughs> At least you could take her to... Anyway, I won't say that. Okay. Um, you already did. The, it's um, too late now. 
Uh, it is, it is, it is. I, I'm self-editing here, which is really a bummer when the piggy starts to go oink. Um, where was I? Uh, 100,000 years is, line across the floor. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, we got a 10-foot line. Will you break that 100,000 years, or that 10-foot line into a 5-foot line for uh, 50,000 years? You take that and you divide it into 2.5 for 25,000 years. Break that into a 1.5 or 1 and a quarter, whatever it is foot line that's 12,000 years ago that's where the, the mammoths were on the earth and we were developing technologies like you know lithic arts and all that stuff we have projectile weapons and uh, you break that into something six or so inches long and there's your 6,000 years pyramids and what have you but you keep working this line down and when you get done with this thing you're going to find something that's about a quarter of an inch long and that's the 200 year veneer of civilization unquote and all of our instincts and goals and drives and things were built up through, um, I guess, a sort of a selective evolution that started 100,000 or more years ago. You know, so the, the drives that we experience, things going on in our minds, are based on something that was put there when the saber-toothed cat was chasing our asses through the forest. And we've so, come so far from that, haven't we? We have. But, Mentally, you know, I mean, not not exactly what you're saying here is, at our core of our being, that's who we are. But I'm saying, like, mentally, we've kind of checked out from that reality. We have. It's, it's not a comfortable one. You know, you can't kick back with a beer in your hand and the TV flying away there. Um, and, you know, that's one of the problems. Too many people these days are passive participants in life. And that totally sucks because you're wasting a perfectly good life on sitting around watching other people do stuff. Gotcha. Now, I mean, you... You talk pretty deep with this stuff, and it's the kind of thing that I, I kind of talk about often. But you take it from kind of a different perspective. At one point, you actually taught kind of preparedness and planning at a university, and to me, that's really unique. I never even knew you could. I might have went to college if I knew I could take classes on that. So can you talk about that a little bit? I mean, seriously, I didn't go to college. I was like. I've had enough of school. I was even a good student, and I'm like, this isn't for me. If I knew I could go out and take survival classes in college, I might have went. Well, yeah, you know, it, it, there's um, there's a game you have to play. It's kind of a uh, a lie to the game. What you've got to do is couch your survival program and you put the proposal together in the, in the sciences. You know, you say, well, look, we're going to be able to connect things like orographic lifting and diurnal flows and the uh, laws of thermodynamics and all the other stuff. <laughs> <laughs> and you have them buy into this. So the people that are reading go, ooh, they're going to be talking about all these sciences. When in Anthropology fact, and archaeology, and this is going to be great, right. and you're teaching them how to, how to run a hand drill. Absolutely. We're going to take them out there, and they're going to learn about the Krebs cycle. You know, that's the energy cycle that we got in our bodies. So we teach them about those cycles for sure, but in the meantime, they're shivering their asses off because they didn't take into account the laws of thermodynamics and say they're going to get cold. (laughs) That's how I put it together. But I ran the courses at two different universities, um, 20 years at Cal State University Northridge and eight years at UCLA. And UCLA was the only one that was willing to allow me to put together an urban course because my theoretical pinnings were just a little bit skinnier. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, well, I'm going to teach them how to live like a bum. Oh, wow. <laughs> wow. <laughs> and, folks, you can hear that Ron's dedicated, man, because he's over there choking on the swine flu, and he's still here with us. So, Oh, uh, that one was good. That one tasted about <laughs> like an apricot with salt. 
Holy I gotta tell moly. you, Ron, and I'm not just blowing smoke up your ass or anything. This is the most enjoyable and hilarious interview I've ever done on the show. Um, so, pardon me for laughing at your misery. But, you know, seriously, in, in all seriousness, you, you've taught people in university, you've taught at events, you've done seminars, you've done all these things, but really you've taught thousands and thousands of people with your videos, your DVDs. I guess when you start out, you're doing VHS, right? Um, even right. though he has a VCR anymore, uh, you have a tremendous amount available uh, of, of like information available in your video series. Like you've got the Woods Master, the Urban Master series. C- can you tell us kind of about your DVDs and you know you even say this on your site? But I just want to give you the chance to tell people about this. Why do you use video? What 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 is it about video that makes it a great educational system? Well, um, uh, that's another good question, and I, I might have to digress just a tiny bit off your your, your basics there. Uh, when we started this, there really wasn't any good way to present video material. I had made a film back in 1981 uh, called Journey of the Quest for Self-Reliance. Was, we shot it on 16-millimeter with sound and stuff, and, and it was extremely popular back in those days. But, you know, not everybody carries around a 16-millimeter projector. Sure. <laughs> so, you know, it's kind of hard to sell it in the homes. We did um, – we watched the uh, the technology develop, though, from VHS tapes to all the other ones, little 8-millimeters and so forth, until ultimately the – the digital video thing came out in about 96. The very first camera was one made by Sony, and we bought it. In fact, it was probably the second one that was ever shipped in Los Angeles. 20 minutes after we bought it, we were in the wilderness filming our first video. Actually, not the wilderness, but up in the mountains. And um, that was uh, the first volume was, was fire making. And uh, the guy you see in there is quite a bit younger than the one today. But uh, <laughs> but he didn't have the flying flow. Yeah. And uh, we started with that one. What we wanted to do was to chronicle the essential skills, the, the basic skills that a person needs when they go into the woods or when they find themselves in trouble someplace or if they just want to go out there and have a good time. So we started with uh, with shelter, uh, with fire, and then on to shelter and so on and so forth, went through the whole thing. So the... Uh, um, the goal was to, to create a library, a video library, and the reason we wanted to do that was because when, let's say you sit down with a book by um, Mr. Crotchwell or something, you know, and you go, okay, he says, well, i got to do this. I take this. Well, let me, I'll give you an example here. I'm starting to babble. Babbling is good, by the way. It's a release. Um, well, that's where language came one, from, right? That is big tower, and it babbled, and then <laughs> that was it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, they're all about. Um, if I tried to explain to you how to tell the time by uh, the North Star and the Big Dipper, I would say to you something like this: um, On March seventh, you know, see, take your date and count the number of months from March seventh. Uh, add those numbers to the hour that you see on the clock that's defined by the pointer stars of the Big Dipper at the North, at, at Polaris or something like that. Basically, what I'm doing is I would lose somebody in a hurry. Yeah, I'm going to sleep, right? I'm I'm like, yeah, I don't. This is too complicated. This is too hard. It is boring. Exactly. You got the math. You got all this other crazy stuff. Who's going to remember that? You know. But when you do it on video, you see it. And there, there's like three modes of learning. There's there's seeing it hearing it, and doing it. When you put things on video, you see it and you hear it. So you've covered two of the important parts of learning. The third one is get your ass up off that couch, stop watching this damn DVD, and, and go do, do it. it. Yeah. That's right. And that's what we try to endorse people. Uh, 
endorse for people to do or whatever the hell I'm trying to say. So that's um, that's the goal of the video, and I think we've done a pretty good job. You you uh, you left out one last little piece here. We got another series called Cave Cooking that uh, my wife uh, uh, put together. It's five videos on how to cook out in the wilderness. You know, that was my next animals. question. Was can you tell us a bit about your DVD's most recent project? Yeah, yeah. The the uh, Cave Cooking one is a is a just a really good seller. It's a lot of fun to watch and. Um, you know, you get to see gory things and watch a good-looking lady uh, eat bugs, which is always a thrill for me. I, other people probably <laughs> see now, Ron. That's what I love about you compared to like Bear Grylls and Les Stroud. I was, I did a guest spot on the Handgun Podcast with Eric Shelton last night, and what I was saying is those two guys. You know what I'd love to see them do? I'd love to see, um, you know, a good-looking forty-year-old Hollywood wife go out with Bear Grylls in the woods when he's scaling these cliffs and crap. And say now survive and take her with you. You actually do that. You bring your wife along. Well, that's she a, loves it, and that's this a hell of a lot animal. more real of a survival situation if we're going to use that term than you know some guy out there on his own with SAS training. Right. Well, yeah, I know Bear pretty well. We we spent some time together, and he's a he's a hell of a nice guy, and he's a real adventurer. But. Um, uh, you know, some of the skills on there are there because of Discovery Channel. Sure, I, I understand that. I'm not picking on Bear. I'm just saying that the whole premise of itself is if you gave, especially give him, a, this is what I said last night, give him a wife, give him an eight year old son that's bad because his uh, his Nintendo <laughs> Game Boy's not working, and a 13 year old girl is just starting to have lady problems, and put him out in the woods with those three, and let's see oh, yeah. what he's going to do with that. And I think you'd yeah. actually sort that out. Well, I've done it. We've, uh, you know, we contract from time to time with uh, with groups and families, and I did it a lot more before uh, the old days. But um, we've taken many, many, many families up over the years. Uh, you know, and let's see, at the university, I ran over six thousand people through wow. uh, programs that lasted anywhere from three days to almost a month. And um, you know, these family things last about a week, and we've had exactly what you're describing there. Uh, young boys who've had nothing but video games and uh, girls that are, I'm in love, I'm in love with Johnny G, or whatever the hell his name is, you know. <laughs> and and uh, I don't know how I'm going to live without a muppet. Well, try eating this fish. Yeah. And ew <laughs> yeah. a bug, right? You know, there's like yeah, five yeah, million of them, and it's like one bug's bothering them. Yeah. yeah. But after a week, it's all changed because the priorities change, and that, that's really what all of this wilderness living and survival is about is priorities. You know, you start to refocus yourself, and human beings are extremely adaptable. We have to be, you know, to be well, whatever it is that we are. <laughs> no, I think you're dead on. I think that you talked about with the timeline is really good. I'm gonna, I'm gonna, st I'm gonna tell you right now. I'll credit you for it, but I'm gonna steal it from you when you talk oh, about yeah. you know a hundred thousand years, and we're down to a quarter of an inch of this modern world because I've talked about it a lot you know over over the past couple of years now saying that you know this is why when you go out in the woods and hunt or do something simple like go in your backyard and grow a garden and stick your hands into the soil or 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 skin a squirrel all of a sudden everything starts to feel right it's not because you're like some weird thing or something that likes skin and squirrels it's because you're doing what a human being evolved over 100,000 years to do and you're starting exactly. to behave like a normal human being. And what we think of as weird today is actually what was what was normal for ninety nine thousand, you know, eight hundred and eighty years. 
and we've decided that's not normal today. And just because we've decided it doesn't mean that our inner being has decided to go along and agree with us on that. Absolutely. Well, you know, people uh, spend all this time and money taking care of their lawns. I want a beautiful lawn. Oh, it's God. Be Greek and, <laughs> you know, it's pretty. And, God, they get out there and they look at their lawn. But do those stupid bastards ever lay down on the lawn? You no. Know, put your, your back on the, your spine against the earth and feel the grass behind you. And, and something comes over you. I, I, I think it's probably pretty common for people to feel just really good when they lay in the dirt. You know, maybe not laying in the mud. Yeah, yeah. Um, there are times when that might be fun too, but yeah, um, that would be a digression. <laughs> I've I've done that too. I've done I've did that. In my, I'm sure you did in your military time too, where you're rolling around in the mud and you got mud coming out of your ear, you know, and you got a, a an NCO screaming at you, telling you you like it. And, well, I guess I sort of do, but not really. But uh, but I, I think there, you're right about that connection. And and we've lost a lot of that with kind of the urban environment, but there's a lot of that still available to the uh, available to us in the urban environment. And, and I, to, to me, and a part of what I do, what I do for is because I think that one day we may have to like live like primitive people in an urban environment, either for a short period of time or a long period of time. And, and kind of segueing off of this, you've done a whole DVD series called Urban Master. You want to tell folks a little bit about that and what kind of motivated you to do that? Absolutely sure that um, that series is still uh, is still going on. We're still working on it. We um, we've heard had a lot of people say, "God, how do you get ready for the big one?" You know, or yeah. what do you what do you do? And back in the old days, when I lived in California. Um, whenever there'd be an earthquake, since I was pretty well known down there, all of the TV stations would toddle out to my place and they'd uh, they'd say, "Teach us about uh, urban survival." And so I'd show them a survival kit and carried on like that. And then ultimately, I found myself. Um, and this may sound very strange, Jack. And in fact, I think back on it, and it was strange. But I had bought a place in Malibu, and um, I built a bomb shelter on it. And it was a 1,200-square-foot bomb shelter, 28 feet underground. And I spent a few bucks on that thing. Yeah, I bet you a, did. <laughs> it, it was a beauty. And... Um, you know, our goal there at that time was we were hearing a lot of things from people who were in the uh, uh, economic marketplaces, you know, people who were commodities traders and all the rest of it, saying this can't last for long. And we we are looking at some kind of a bubble pop in here, and we need to have some place to run to when it happens. And so they wanted me to build one of these and, and uh, demonstrate it and then perhaps build some for them. You know, that was kind of the, my thinking, which was a little foggy at the time. I really built it for myself to have a good time. Got you. You know, I had an underground shooting range there. <laughs> That's cool. I'm just thinking an underground bomb shelter in Malibu, and if we dropped a bomb on the California coast and then the water goes down. and But, you know, you did say you were a hippie for a while. Yeah, I did. I did. I, and I never said that all my thinking was clear. <laughs> that might have been from those hippie days. Yeah. <laughs> but um, um, the, the series itself was designed around the needs of people who live in the real world. You know, not everybody's going to find themselves out in the wilderness needing to make a fire with a with a bow drill or anything like that. They're going to find themselves out there probably with a, a lighter or something, and maybe they won't find themselves out there at all because they're afraid of the woods or they don't mm-hmm. like it or something, you know. Hell, I don't even know how to take a crap in the woods. Oh, I'm not going to camp out there, you know. That's the sort of thing that breaks people. But um, what we... Uh, what we did is we realized, of course, that uh, 99% of the population is living in urban 
areas, and so we need to teach them how to store food, how to take care of the basic necessities, sanitary things, and so forth, um, how to protect their home a little bit, not you know, not go overboard like I did with a bomb shelter, but at least something. Mm-hmm. And then we talked about uh, in another volume how to how to make it when you're on the road, you know, away from home. A lot of people travel; they go someplace. And what if it happens when you're somewhere else? Very fact, cool. We, yeah, it was a cool thing. We um, we had a lot of fun doing it. I I had an experience with that in the I think it was '91 earthquake or something like that in California. My wife and I were uh, skiing in Breckenridge, and um, we had just started our journey home when the big earthquake hit. All of the roads were locked out. There was no way to get home in California. And I lived at that time about two miles from the San Andreas Fault. But I had everything there. You know, I was going to bug in. Mm-hmm. But we were stuck 100 miles away because the roads were closed. But fortunately, having thought through this before, I had maps of the area and I've explored all of the, the routes. And there was a nice dirt road that led past all of the blocks and so forth. There were no bridges on it. There was, was no place where water would overcome it. And we drove straight home and kicked back and, and ate and drank and enjoyed ourselves while the rest of the world went to hell. You know what? That's one of the coolest things I've ever heard because it makes me take something I've been teaching people and flip it around 180 degrees. I've been telling people for the last year and a half that one of the things that they need to have in kind of their bug-out bag, their, their, their evacuation kit, their emergency planning, however you want to put it, and one in every vehicle as well, is uh, a documentation package. And one of the things in there needs to be three evacuation routes or three evacuation destinations. And each destination needs to have three routes, and each route needs to have a rally point in case you and your, you know, you and your wife are in two different places when you have to evacuate so you have a place to assemble on your way to your destination. Now, what I've actually never thought about is how that would apply to exactly what you just described. If I have the way out, I also have the way back in. And in many instances, what I want to do is get home. And uh, it's one of those dumb moments. I had a guy that on my forums called Trioxanon about two months ago. And uh, he's, uh, he breeds chickens, and he's got this little hub evader incubator. And I breed snakes, so I've got one too, exact same thing. <laughs> and he started talking about the fact that last year he wasn't hatching any chickens, but he put his seeds in there, you know, a seed starter in there. And I went, yeah. well, that's brilliant, and duh, idiot. Why were you putting heating pads and all this other stuff when you could have just stuck them in there? And, and you've just done the same thing for me again. Now I'm thinking I, I should have been pointing that out all this time, that if you have an evacuation route planned, you have a get-home route planned at the same time. That's very, very cool, Ron. Exactly. Well, thank you. I, uh, I appreciate it. I, I'm a big believer in the in the bug-in plan as well, but I, I believe in that because the locations we live in are the kinds of places you want to bug in to. Sure. And right now we live in Coeur d'Alene, Idaho. Total population in the whole vicinity is 30,000. And I've got, um, right now I can see one whitetail in my my yard right down below me, and there's about six that run through. So any any day I want to feed myself, walk out with a bow and drop one. And, uh, you know, it's an outdoorsman's paradise. So we've got plenty of ways to feed ourselves, and there's no need for me to go rushing off into the woods where it's cold and miserable and there's no we. Yeah, yeah no we. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> but we've also got a motorhome, and it's got a uh, 6KW generator on it. I've got a plug that goes from that directly into the house. So using the motorhome generator, I can power the house, at least the parts that are important. And uh, and we can stay home warm and comfortable with our firewood and the rest of it and um, and eat as we normally do. 
and uh, and wait. And then if it looks like it's dangerous, then we could put into motion the bug out plan. I, I'm but big. The, I'm big with you on that. I, I completely agree there. And there's a lot of people who don't who don't think of it that way. You know, they want to grab the gun. You know, I got yeah. 500 rounds of 23, and uh, my God, I'll shoot those bastards if they get near me. Well, the fact is that they're probably not going to. Well, and the other thing is, a lot of these times I'm thinking about with these people is, who do you think you're going to shoot? I mean, what, what what war do you really think you're going to fight? Now, uh, you know, on the other side, I, I'm big proponent of the Second Amendment. I'm big on making sure you have a way to defend your home if you have to. God forbid it comes to it. Um, I have a concealed carry permit. I carry every day. I carry in my house, which some people think I'm yeah, nuts. Absolutely. But I'm like, why would I spend my whole day carrying, come home to my house, put my gun away when this is the place that I'm most likely to actually need it? But I also kind of temper that with some reality on the other end and go, if you think you're going to play Red Dawn, and, and, and I love the movie, it was great entertainment, but if we ever get into that situation, up there on that mountaintop is a group of rebels, they'll just blow up the top of the mountain. And, and I think some of these people are living in some weird, kind of weird, twisted fantasy land somewhere between Robin Hood and Red Dawn, and I, I think that, that that might make good entertainment, but it's going to make a really lousy plan to actually... Follow the number one of survi- number one rule of survival, which is to still be alive tomorrow. <laughs> All right, you're living longer than another person or thing. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. yeah, yeah. We want to we want to do whatever we can to avoid conflict, and that's why we talk in our videos about the chameleon plan. Make yourself so you're not interesting. You know, make yourself. Uh, wear, wear pink for God's sake. You know, yeah. do things that that look like you are just a regular spaz walking around. They go. You got a, a baby diaper bag, um, <laughs> you're walking around looking like you're looking for your kid or your wife or whatever, and people aren't going to pay any attention to you. They don't know that you've got your Glock 20 inside there. Yeah. And we're, one of our sponsors is the uh, USCCA, United States Concealed Carry Association. And I, like you, I'm a strong proponent of, um, of the Second Amendment, and I carry inside my house. You know, if somebody breaks in here, they're going to be tasting something. Yeah, yeah. We so call it well, joining we, the horizontal club. <laughs> yeah, they'll be in. They'll definitely be mouth breathers in a hurry, though. Yeah, but you know, so, uh, go ahead. No, no, you go ahead, man. It's your turn. I was just gonna say that that that's that. You know, that's the thing. Uh, I, I'll say the same. The stuff you're saying, it, just, I, it really makes me feel good to hear you say it because I've been saying this since day one here on the show, and I've said things like. The last thing you want to do if you do get forced into a situation where you're bugging out on foot because your vehicle's broke down or you, you have no choice or whatever is to be walking around in digital camouflage, right, with uh, an <laughs> AR-15 and looking like this, uh, you know, soldier of fortune badass. And at the same time, you've got a wife and two kids following you, dragging like a little handcart or something, and you're just attracting attention of authority. You're attracting attention of those that would do you harm. What I would prefer to look like is a vagrant, you know, street person that has no clue what's going on, that's just passing through, that's not worth messing with, but at the same time be the most prepared and well-organized individual there is. But I don't want anybody to know that. Kind of the gray man thing, I guess, is what you're getting at. Right, yeah, and that's why we call it the, the, the chameleon thing. You take on the color of your background. Um, we, we like the idea that we're not going to be attractive to other people. At one time, I had a Hummer H1, you know, that big nasty thing, and it was bulletproof. I'd done everything to it that I could. Yeah, it weighed 11,000 pounds when I was <laughs> done with all the armor and stuff. But 
you know, I was looking at it one day thinking, oh, God, everywhere, every time I drive somewhere, people look at me, and that's mm-hmm. not what I want. Um, so I, I shifted over to something that's a little bit less um, conspicuous. Uh, obvious. I mean, yeah, more inconspicuous. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, you know, I can still get the same places that I could have got in that thing, and I'm not bulletproof anymore, but I can go a lot farther because my mileage is better. I'm not dragging 11,000 pounds around. Gotcha. And, um, you know, so we, we have to make decisions. Sometimes we do things because we like it. We like the look of it, like a black rifle. Mm-hmm. I mean, I can't tell you when I haven't picked one up and gotten a little thrill down in the groin area. You know, I go, oh, man, that's nice. Then you have flashbacks to the military days, and you're knocking a pin out and breaking it in half and pulling the bolt carrier out and feeling all good about it, but it does stick out, right? Yeah, yeah. I, I like the feeling of having one, and we, we have a couple of those, but they're uh, they're not important parts. You mm-hmm. know, we, probably it would be the old Model 70 or something like that if we actually mm-hmm. had to go to ground. Yeah, if but, you need um, to take out a distant target, a, a good bolt-action rifle, if you can defend your home, uh, th- there's very few things in this world that are as feared at close quarters as a good old-fashioned shotgun. And you, can ha- <laughs> and you can have a black shotgun with a heat shield and a bayonet and a light and all this fancy stuff on it, but if you're firing double O buck out of it, and I've got a plain Jane 870 Express, the terminal effect is exactly the same. And then thinking practically, I've said this, and I've taken real heat from my own audience on this. If I shoot you because you broke into my house with my duck gun, Right then, I just happen to have this old sporting shotgun around, and this guy broke in. And I'm glad I had it. And if it, if I get like a DA with a hard on for this thing or anything, that's all he's got. And if I have right. this shielded, you know, trench gun replica from World War One with a bayonet on it, he's running around going, and he was waiting to kill somebody. But all I'm concerned about when it comes to defending my house is making sure if you come in with a threat to do harm, you go out horizontal. That's it. And I can do that with either weapon, so why would I weaken my position in this litigated society that we're in? I think, I think that's brilliant, I, and I think you've got it right online here. Now, Idaho's a little bit different. I, a, a quick story, if you don't mind. A couple of years ago, there was a fellow came over from Washington State. We're not too far from that. Held up one of the local tobacco stores, because here they only sell tobacco in certain kinds of stores. And he walked in there and pulled out a pistol and said to the clerk behind the counter, hey, give me all your money. So the clerk said, okay, reached under the cash register, pulled out his Glock 20, and put six <laughs> rounds in the middle of the guy's chest. Well, the, um, the, 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 the liberal press over there in Washington came over to, to, the, to the, um, the sheriff. He says, how can, you, how can you tolerate this? You know, what, what is this? Your people are shooting people like that. What do you have to say? And the sheriff says, you know, the only thing I have to say is I'm really glad our citizens are keeping up their target practice. <laughs> he didn't miss a shot. That's the, that's <laughs> the important thing. You know, we had one here, Ron, in Texas about a year ago. This guy had somebody going, and, you know, it's the press did the same thing. They made it like, you know, he did this over wiring from an air conditioner. But this was a big facility, and this was like a $10,000 air conditioning unit. And this was back when copper went up to like 350 a, a pound or something like that. And there were people breaking into his facility every time he had his air conditioner fixed, pulling the copper wiring out for the copper. And it was costing him five grand a pop. So he told the police, and they said, you know, sir, we can't stake out your facility over an air conditioner. And he said, fine. He sat up there with a rifle, and a guy came to rob it, and he shot him. And uh, two weeks later, police still weren't staking it out. It happened again. So another week later, he waited. He shot a second one in three weeks. 
and they asked the Dallas County Sheriff what we should do about this. And he uh, said, don't rob that guy anymore. Because (laughs) (laughs) And funny enough, I've never heard another word about this guy being robbed ever again. And uh, I, I wish that states like Massachusetts and Rhode Island would maybe get a little bit of that going on there. But I guess that's our system. You know, if you don't like it, move to another state. Uh, hopefully they'll leave it that way. We, we've kind of gone off, but I, I wanted to make sure we tied something in here. Uh, I'm kind of doing a theme week this week. I had John McCann and Dave Canterbury on earlier this week. Now I've got you on. All you guys focus on a lot of the primitive skills. Now you do more about the urban stuff than they do. But what I wanted to get it, wanted to get was kind of your take on how skills that are valuable in the kind of the wilderness, uh, very rural uh, environment have, you know, direct application in the urban environment. In other words, if I know how to make fire, I can take care of myself, whether I'm out in the middle of the wilderness or I'm in, you know, urban USA when the systems have failed. Because I, I like, just put it in perspective for you, I think one of the things that people miss out on when they look at something like Hurricane Katrina and they go, well, I live, you know, I don't live on a coastal area. That can't happen here. The point of, like, what happened with Hurricane Katrina wasn't that a hurricane hit. It's what happens immediately when you remove support systems from people that have become dependent on them. Can you kind of talk about how those two worlds bridge together? Oh, absolutely. Uh, The... um and I, and I want to say that you've got exactly the right idea there. There's a, a, a huge connection between the two. But let me just give you a quick uh, rundown of how we arrive at different kinds of things. I call it the rule of threes. You might have heard of it. But uh, we've got a rule uh, that we work with. Um, we've got three minutes of survival without air. You know, if you, don't, if you can't breathe, make it so you can. You've got about three hours without shelter if the weather is really, really bad. You've got cold wind, wet, that kind of thing. You got about three days of survival without water, three weeks without food, and three months without love. Okay. So, we've got our priorities. If we keep these things foremost in our mind, no matter what environment we're in, let's say we're in the urban environment and uh, we just had a giant earthquake or a Hurricane Katrina or something like that, we've got plenty of air. So, um, do we have a shelter issue? Probably not. So what about water? Well, yeah, water suddenly becomes a priority because maybe the water lines are broken or the distribution systems are screwed up because there's pumps and power is down and all that kind of stuff. So water becomes your first priority. And it helps us to establish these things. And it's exactly the same rules that we use in the wilderness. Now, how do you how do you bridge these things? I, of course, you just mentioned starting fires, and that's really an important thing, particularly here in Idaho when the winter comes. Last two years we've had record-breaking snowfalls. And uh, so a lot of people were relying on wood for uh, for heating and so forth. And if you can't build a fire, you're screwed. But um, uh, leave that alone. Let's, let's just talk about navigation, primitive navigation. If you look up at the night sky and you see a crescent moon up there, a lot of people go, oh, look, crescent moon, big deal. Well, if you take the two points of the lighted part of the moon, you know, the big crescent like a big C, mm-hmm. connect the top one to the bottom one and follow that to the ground, to the closest part of the earth, that's roughly south. So when you're traveling through the city and you look up and you see a crescent moon, you can tell exactly where south is, so it instantly reorients you. It's a wilderness Which is skill, tremendously have... important. I mean, you know, putting it into something where you're not in a survival situation. I can't tell you how many times I've flown into an airport in the nighttime to a city I've never been to before and how disoriented you are and how helpful that – I didn't know that. That's, that's, a, that's really cool, Ron. Remember, it's not due south. It's going to be southerly. So that's at least helpful, yeah, right? Yeah. 
Yeah, and if you're sitting someplace, you've got a skyscraper, and there's a shadow tip from a from a skyscraper. The taller the thing casting the shadow, the faster the shadow moves. So if you mark it with your mind's eye where that shadow tip is, and then wait a few minutes to see where it goes to another spot. There's your east-west line. East-west line, yeah, absolutely. Just like a solar, that would be just like a sun compass in the wilderness, right? Stick a stick in the ground and track it with some sticks or some pebbles. But now I'm Precisely. using a skyscraper to do it. Very, very cool. And if you find yourself, let's say that the, the food supply system is broken down, the swine flu goes away, and the new flu is the X-ray flu or something that turns you to bones, you know, comes <laughs> roaring through and all those systems break down. And um, and there you are. Oh, my God, what am I going to do for food? Because you've eaten everything. If you know how to trap in the wilderness, you know how to trap in the city. So all of those cats and dogs and things that are running around because people can't feed them anymore mm-hmm. um, suddenly become something for the dinner table. And I know some people wouldn't like the idea of eating uh, your, their little pooch or something, but they don't eat their pooch. They eat somebody else's somebody pooch. Somebody else's pooch. Hey, yeah, protein yeah. is necessary. And I've actually been, since I came back from dirt time, I rigged up some uh, simple deadfalls, uh, small ones that I can kind of cram under my deck so I don't kill one of my cats. And uh, <laughs> I've got, I, I've been feeding the birds, and I've got some cotton rats that have decided that they like to live under my deck because they can come out and eat the sunflower seeds I feed to the birds. So I've been whacking them left and right. And I, I, I assume that if, uh, if I needed to eat them, they would be there and I could eat them. I've been feeding them to one of my pythons, actually. Um, so I've been getting free food for the snake, but you know cool. that I would be happy to eat that um, if uh, if I ran out of deer meat in the freezer, and, and I, I wouldn't bat an eyelash. My wife would say, "I'm not eating that." I'm figuring about day 21, that rat <laughs> would start tasting pretty good. <laughs> you know, I'm going to tell you right here, right now, in front of everybody, that rat does taste good. Yeah, I've eaten dozens of rat sandwiches over the years, and if you cook those <laughs> things up with olive oil with garlic and onion. For God's sake, that is the sweetest meat you'll ever eat. Do they taste just like squirrel? No, they taste just like um, rat. They taste like <laughs> like olive oil. <laughs> they take on the flavor of the crap, whatever you cook them with. But boy, they're they are so good. My mouth is just drooling. Wait, that's my nose. Well, <laughs> I, it, let's, uh, if you were going to like, okay, let's say you're going to make a top ten. I'm not going to ask you for ten of them, but if you're going to put together a top ten list of primitive skills that people should uh, learn and teach themselves, what would be a couple of things that you know would go on that list without having to get down to the end and, you know, rule out one over the other? Okay, I'm, I'm not quite sure I'm clear. Is this going to be urban or wilderness or just Either, general? Any, just general skills that people should know how to do. Uh, for any environment, you know, let's 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 say it's just primitive skills. Let's say it's wilderness skills, and you're going to make a top ten list of wilderness skills you should know. Give me two or three that you know would go on that list, and you can't say fire making because we all know that goes on the list. Yeah, I, I wouldn't even uh, start with that one. I probably the first thing I would do is know priorities and how they fit. Then know a little bit about the physics of life. Um, you know what what it takes to make something work. Um, the next thing is um, the uh, is know your own limitations. A lot of people don't know that they can't just get up out of their office chair and walk ten miles <laughs> in at five miles an hour. You know. Yeah. So you, you need to you need to have some some knowledge of your of your limitations. Uh, otherwise, you'd be setting unreasonable goals, and then when you fail to reach them, you know you're going to have all these depression issues setting in. But if you if you establish your priorities. And uh, and you've got some knowledge of what is going on around you, knowledge of your environment, I guess is what I really meant to say, and the knowledge of your own capacity. Those would be the top three. From there, 
uh, then you would want to go into, I'm always going to be knowledge-based because the hard skills are things that you get, you know, with practice and so forth. Knowing about a fireboat doesn't mean you can do it, right? Correct. So that, that's a hard skill. But, but knowledge of survival techniques would be something that would come along with that. And then um, practice in those techniques. So that would probably like be the first five. Am I counting this correctly? I, I just heard a, the pig flew oink there for a minute, so I might have had a moment of aphasia, they call that. Um, does that... Uh, does that make sense to you there, buddy? That makes sense. And so what you're saying is you're putting a premium on the ability to think, improvise, adapt, and overcome rather than the individual skill set of itself. Exactly. You watch these people. You, you just mentioned these, these things, improvise, and overcome, and all that stuff. It sounds like that survival program, survivor program. And in there, those are the key elements that they've, they've established as the important things. You know, none of these people that go out there really have any survival skills. You can see that whenever you watch this show. Sure. And um, But somehow they make it, though, don't they? Yeah, because it's they in them it because... to, like, figure out what to do to compensate for what's lacking. Right. So they're, they're doing that on the fly. And if, it, if they didn't have the mental capacity for doing that sort of thing, then their uh, chances for survival would be, well, the show would be very short. Mm-hmm. And there'd be a lot of casualties. Yeah, yeah. There practically are anyway, but... Uh, the point I'm making is that we can all get the hard skills, but first we have to get the knowledge. And they can take away your tools, but if you have the knowledge, they can't take that away. Well, I guess they could shoot your ass, but um, <laughs> you know, your skills are But short of that, you're, no, you're dead on. Short of that, you can take away everything I own. My knowledge and my ability to look around, assess the situation, utilize the resources that are available, implement them, and move forward – you ain't taking that until you put a bullet in my head. That's right. And that's exactly what I'm trying to say. So if you're making a list of the top ten things, that would be it. It would be all listed right along what you just said. It's going to be skill-based, knowledge-based. And I, I know that if I was set out there in, <coughs> excuse me, in the urban environment right now with what I've got on, I could go out and find a lady's hairpin someplace, probably near an, an, um, a bathroom or something in a mall, take that hairpin, break it in half, and turn it into a lockpick. Then I could take, turn that lockpick into just about anything I want at a, uh, a rent-a-yard, you know, one of those rental places, mm-hmm. particularly the ones that are unsecured. Because most of the locks today could be picked with a hairpin. It just takes a two-parts attention bar and the pick itself, but you can make those with a hairpin. There's, there's no bullshit behind that. It's just knowledge and some skill. So um, I can load myself up with gear in no time at all with no money by having that particular skill set. And there's a lot of other ones. How about dumpster diving? You know, what kind of uh, places are the best place to dive into the dumpster? Du- uh, dive into the dumpster. You know, the ones that have the big compression things in the back are not a good spot. Because everything's crushed. So you in- <laughs> yeah, you're going to get your ass crushed, and <laughs> the food in there is going to be broken up. And Yeah. But you could take a – this is probably a little bit on the gross side, but I was a mayor in a little town in Idaho here some years ago, and we had a – uh, a group of people come through. I think they were called the Rainbow People or something like that. And they came rolling through, and they usually bring 50 or 60,000 people into an area that can't defend itself. But they kind of live off the land wherever they go, and they do it once a year someplace, and they had chosen our county for that this one year. But several of them walked into our little general store, and this guy whipped it out and pissed all over all the meat and vegetables in there. Oh, my God. And they ran away. Now, you know, that. If the people that were there had been on top of it, they would have just blasted them, but they weren't. They were just shocked. Yeah. Later that night, though. They threw it all away. 
right. And there it was. Vegetables, meat, and the rest of the stuff that they pissed on. Wash the piss off and eat it. Wow. You know, it's, it's, um, there's techniques, and if you know those techniques, you can move forward. Um, and, and that sounds really gross, but we're talking about situations here that you're talking about between the difference between life and death. And I, I know I'm going to get some comment flame over that, and I don't care, folks. I want you to understand that there are situations that you end up in. And this is what I've been saying about you have to be willing to defend what you have that put people into a situation where it's survive or die and is one thing. But what's even more is when you put me into a position where my child is going to survive or die. Right. Your neighbor can become a danger. And that's the you know that's mild compared to what I think would happen if we ever had the end all be all big one. Uh, that that's that's that would be tame stuff. People would be going, oh, you did that. They'd shoot the guy. They'd eat him, and they'd eat the stuff that he went on. Uh, <laughs> wow, I, I that's a new story for me, Rod. Hey, I, I want to uh, I want to get we're like about an hour now, so we need to kind of to get toward wrapping up, but. I wanted to give you a chance to plug your site. You're at survival.com, and you've got all your DVDs and everything available there. You've also got, like, a really kick-ass forum. And even before I had a forum of my own, I was already kind of promoting you. I had you on my site for your forum. You know, the forums that are out there, yours, uh, mine, the, the new one that's building over at Dirt Time, they're really amazing. Can, can you talk about kind of what your forum and the people that are there and what they've done for you and how much it means and how important it is for people to kind of reach out into that community that's growing out there? Well, sure, absolutely. We, uh, uh, I started working with forums back, oh, God, about 11 years or 12 years ago, something like that. Initially, they were just newsletters. And we learned really quickly, even with the newsletter things, that the um, – that the things are building a sense of community. People would respond to comments that were in there. And the early ones, as I said, were newsletters, which were sent out through email. But uh, people would respond to comments. If somebody said, oh, man, I'm having a bad day, somebody would come back and uh, say, oh, don't, don't feel so bad, whatever. But today now with the forums and, and ours, it's got about 7,000 people on it. We have um, a, a real community, a real community of really good people who, who uh, work together to help each other out on a day-to-day basis. I mean, uh, one guy had to put his dog down just a couple of days ago. I mean, a really sad thing, but um, a lot of people had dust in their eyes when they read that thing, and there was mm-hmm. a lot of support for him. And uh, and it goes way beyond that. There's uh, there's those personal sharing things, the community parts of it, but then there's a lot of really bright, skillful, uh, experienced people who share uh, their their knowledge of the wilderness and urban survival, and they they share it freely with other people. And there's, there'll be discussion about alternative ways of doing things. People put a lot of time and effort into um, into their posts, and I'm really proud of the hoodlums. We, we call them the hoodlums, and I'm really proud of them. They're a fantastic group of people, and you know, if there was ever a problem, I know that anybody who is a hoodlum would be somebody that I could depend on. <laughs> it may not sound good, but it's that's us. You know. No, we, no, uh, I understand exactly what you're saying, and it really is amazing to me how much effort some forum members put into helping other people, sharing their knowledge. I've seen people write, like, they'll do a project, and the pictures, the photography, the information, the the collateral, the background, the research. I'm like, if you package this, you could sell this for 30 bucks and not a oh, yeah. This is one post. And not a single person that bought this product that wanted to know how to do this would ever bitch or ask for their money back and you've given it for free because you've put it into this community. 
and it's right. it's it's amazing and it's like if you ask me what's what's the thing that that like has meant the most to me out of out of out of my show and my site it's been that forum i'm sure it's the same thing for you oh absolutely every day when i get up it's the first thing i check at absolutely. check on make sure that everybody's doing okay that there's no new tragedies or if there's some way i can make it better or learn something and i'm learning something every single day when i get on there and uh you know sometimes it's just a reminder of something that i i had learned and forgotten but mostly I'm seeing some really new and innovative things, and, and new products come popping up. And mm-hmm. you know, it's it's just a it's just a wonder that we've got these kind of things uh, available. And of course, we have our get-togethers. There's a whole section in there for rendezvous all around the country, and we have I don't know what's going on right now. Probably at least a dozen get-togethers in different parts of the country. And uh, so we we you know we get together physically as well as as uh, verbally over the over the forum. Gotcha. And, uh, yeah. And my guys are starting to do that too. That's really cool when they start meeting up. You've got a big meetup coming up down in uh, Texas somewhere this month that uh, a bunch of your folks are getting together, and that's really awesome. And hey, folks, I mean, if you've been listening to Ron tonight, you're thinking this is a guy that's switched on. You're right. This guy is switched on, and he has a tremendous amount of stuff that's available on his site. Again, his website is survival. Dot com and the fact that he owns that domain tells you how long he's been doing this online. Um, but Ron, you've got a whole s- several series of DVDs, and uh, you're going to throw out an offer for folks tonight to uh, get a 10% discount on anything they want to buy there. Uh, you want to tell That's them how right, they can yeah. get that? Sure. You go to our um, you go to our online site there. You go to our survival.com to see a store that says can't uh, uh, go to the store or something like that. When you click on it, go over there and then select whatever videos or whatever it is that you want to buy. After you've selected that uh, and you're starting to check out, there'll be a box there for you to type in the magic code word, which is, believe it or not, Jack Spirico. <laughs> <laughs> Capitalize that and make a space between the names. And that will give you a 10% discount for the next two weeks. So that, if you want great. anything off of our site, bam, you got it. That's cool, and I appreciate you for doing that. And, and Ron, I want to tell you, this has been one of the greatest interviews I've ever done, and I appreciate you for being here tonight. And hopefully uh, you'll consider coming back and doing this again in the future with us, because I know I'm going to get a bunch of questions after tonight. Ask Ron this. Ask Ron that. Well, I told you guys he's going to be on here two weeks ago. You had two weeks to tell me what you wanted me to ask him, but I bet you you'd be willing to come back again and do this again, wouldn't you? I would, Jack, and I really enjoyed it. Thank you very much. You're a very skilled man. You know, certainly have a way with words, and uh, and obviously you know your background. It's uh, it's fantastic to be able to talk to somebody that actually has skills. Well, well, thank you, sir. That that's a huge thing. And folks, what I want you to take away from tonight is, um, you know, we're wrapping up a week here. We we've gone through a whole week. We've had uh, three great guests on this week. Three great guests from three very different backgrounds, and they all have a very different background from me. And you've heard a lot of similarities, and you've heard some disagreements as well. But the similarities are what to focus on, and you'll also look and see that a lot of things that we've done and we've talked about, we get to the same place via different channels and different methods and different ideology, and that's because when you're really putting together something for yourself and for your family for survival, and it matters to you and it's important to you and you're trying to help other people, you you tend to do things the right way and eventually get to the right place. So roads tend to lead to the common denominator if you're doing things the right way, and it's just cool to kind of see that vindicated over this week with all these different people, with all these different vantage points, all these different backgrounds saying the same thing. And uh, it's been great that Ron's been part of that. It's been great that we've had some other folks on today. 
uh, or on this week. What I want to do is I do want to throw it out there for you. I really want to make Ron uh, come back on here because this was just too much fun. And uh, so I really want some questions from you guys, you know, for Ron, uh, for his, his return appearance uh, to the Survival Podcast. So make sure you're doing that in the comments section. I will put in today's show notes the, uh, the discount code. I'll put a link to Ron's site so you can find out more about that. And I'll tell you this, if, you, uh, if you're a forum member of mine, don't feel like you're cheating if you join the Hoodlums. Those are some great folks. I'm a Hoodlums member myself. Uh, it's a great forum. You'll learn a lot. And uh, we've never been about kind of monopolizing the community out there. We've been about building a community and spreading out into other communities. So please do that. And, folks, you know what? Take the advice that you heard from this guy today. He's been doing this for 40 years. And uh, by incorporating that, uh, that stuff into your life, you'll be able to be, begin to build that better life. This has been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast, along with Ron Hood, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough. Or even if they don't. It doesn't matter because it all gets spent. Well, thanks for tuning in to this episode of the Survival Podcast Friday Flashbacks. If you enjoyed today's show, please consider becoming an MSB member. Just go to thesurvivalpodcast.com and click on Members to learn more. You can also support our show by going to TSPAZ, that's T-S-P-A-Z, TSPAZ.com. Anytime you shop online, and while you'll support us no matter what you buy, you will find over 500 reviews of items I have personally tested and vouch for. And to stay in touch with us and never miss anything... Follow our channel or our group on Telegram. You can find links to that and all our social media options. Just go to the survivalpodcast.com and check the show notes for any episode.